are you still allowed to show your students the the Gandhi movie, the Richard Attenborough? I haven't tried. I mean, are you not allowed to? I mean, I, I, have I missed something? I don't, you might not have. I just, I saw Lawrence of Arabia recently and I've, you know, I've seen it like a half a dozen times or something, but I hadn't seen it. I don't know, since I guess maybe before the great, the great awakening or something, because this is the first time I noticed that the sight of Alec Guinness in, in blackface or brownface or whatever, <laughs> Faisal maybe kind of wince about, but he's only in the film for a few minutes. So I can't imagine what like four straight hours of Sir Ben Kingsley in brownface does to a classroom full of 18 year olds today. Uh, it'd be fun to find out, actually. <laughs> you, should, you should try, or, or maybe not. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. An explosion of new options has transformed homeschooling in America, according to the Washington Post, and demand is surging. Hundreds of thousands of children have started homeschooling in the last few years, and today the number remains 40% above pre-COVID totals. Not only that, but the old image of a parent and child studying a textbook at the kitchen table together is apparently increasingly outdated. The new world of homeschooling, often consisting of pods, co-ops, micro-schools, hybrid schools, blending time at home with shared classrooms and virtual instruction. So, Walter, a small, small but growing share of the education market being somewhere on a spectrum between school and home, in-person and online, professional and amateur. Is this news or faux news? It's news and it's good news. Um, you know, the, the schooling of the industrial age society was sort of, it was really intended to discipline people to work in groups and work according to the rhythm of the clock and, the, and you know, not, not work with your parents on the farm, but to sit in a classroom, follow directions, take orders. Um, so it's actually terrific that the freedom that the information age is bringing us to be able to, to reinvent some old tasks. And it's not as if what's going on in the schools is so fabulous that it's a tragedy that these kids are staying home. I think it's actually one of the best things that's, that's happening right now. All right, our second story. The leaders of Japan and South Korea have signed a trilateral pact with the United States that will set up annual summits between U.S., Korean, and Japanese foreign and defense officials, establish joint military exercises, and create new lines of communication on threats posed by China and North Korea. While the three countries have praised the agreement as historic, one of the critical questions, as the Financial Times puts it, is whether the future leaders of each country will continue in the same direction. I guess another way of putting that is, the question of whether the American, Japanese, and Korean people will continue to elect leaders who will honor the spirit of the pact. So is this what used to be called pactitis, or is it real news? Well, I think we do have to wait and see. It'll be real news if we stick to it. And obviously, in the U.S., there's the question of what will Donald Trump do. Um, my guess is, because of his anti-China instincts, uh, President Trump would probably find this you know, something that's that's okay and he would go along with it. The real question may be South Korea, where foreign policy and in particular policy toward Japan is, is a major political issue. 
with the with the party that's now in the opposition traditionally much more bitter about what happened in World War II, much more suspicious of Japan, and perhaps even with a little bit of a soft spot in its heart for China. And in Korea, unlike in Japan, where we've had the Liberal Democratic Party has been almost uninterruptedly in power for for 60 years, um, in Korea, there's pretty regular rotation. So we, we're going to have to wait until we find out who the next president of South Korea is going to be and whether they're going to go along with this. All right. Final story of the week. And here I'm just going to quote from Mustafa Suleiman, co-founder of Google's DeepMind and Inflection AI, who recently said in an interview with Wired that the scale of current AI models has, quote, grown by an order of magnitude that is 10x every single year for the last 10 years. And we're on a trajectory over the next five years to increase by 10x every year going forward. And that's very, very predictable and very likely to happen. We are absolutely not ready, Suleiman added, because that kind of power gets smaller and more efficient. And anytime something is useful in the history of invention, it tends to get cheaper, it tends to get smaller, and therefore it proliferates. So the story of the next decade is one of proliferation of power, which is what I think is going to cause a genuine threat to the nation state, unlike any we've seen since the nation state was born, close quote. So AI as a near-term threat to the nation state, Walter, do you think that's news or, or phone news? That's a tricky one because there are definitely some nation states that this is a big threat to, but frankly, those nation states aren't among the strongest or most successful of nation states. Um, and so you're going to have nation states that basically don't have access to this technology, can't get access to this technology, and yet are, in a sense, colonized by this technology as it comes out. Because technology like this is pretty universal. Um, people can hook up to it on the internet wherever they are, whether their own government has it or not. But I, I and I think it is, I think it's it's one of a number of developments that is working to displace the nation state from the role that it had. Sort of, uh, you know, classically, the golden age of the nation state is sort of 1930s to maybe 2010 or something like even 2020, where you go back before that in the United States, we didn't even have a central bank until the 20th century. The Federal Reserve came along in 1913. And you look at what was federal spending as a percentage of GDP, it was infinitesimal. In 1900, you had a number of individuals whose personal wealth was greater than the budget of the United States. And you had a number of corporations whose value was significantly greater than the total spending of the United States. And that would have been true not just in the U.S., but in England and Germany. The state only really becomes dominant kind of after World War I, again in the Depression, where the state go, you know, grows to 25, 40 percent in some places of, of GDP. Uh, and I think that, that to people who's, who are rooted in the, in the culture of the 20th, early 21st century, that's the natural situation. They sort of see any change to that as, oh my gosh, this is, this is the end of the nation state. 
but actually, I think nation states are a bit more adaptable than that. And we're likely to see them. Yes, the, the, the advent of AI is going to change a lot of things. It's going to change the way states work, change their relations to each other. I think it's going to have really significant political impacts. But somehow, I think the nation state is, is going to remain the kind of primary political focus of human organization. Just one follow-up question there. I mean, I remember when crypto seemed to be, you know, more central to the news cycle than I guess it is right now. You'd also hear that crypto posed or, you know, cryptographic platforms would pose a, a, a threat to the nation state. The idea being that as more and more economic activity moved onto platforms that were not taxable by the nation state, the nation state would then have to increase taxes and drive more and more people into crypto. And then eventually they'd go bust or something. And you know, I think about with crypto and now again with AI, one of the intermediate steps that, you know, I, I think raises some questions is why would, you know, the Chinese and the American governments ever let any of these, you know, servers get to the point where they pose a threat to the nation state that they wouldn't just start like bombing them or something? Well, I think, um, of course, it's very hard to find a server somewhere, you know, in it's, um, and I think that's his core point, is that this stuff is small, this stuff is value-creating, and it's getting smaller, uh, and, and the real secrets are, are still locked in people's heads. So you, you, know, you, you nuke one server, but if you don't get all the people who know how to program it, you're gonna, the same thing is going to pop up somewhere else. So, so I think the technology is ineradicable, but I think the, um, the capacity of of human politics to adopt and therefore for the nation state to adopt, I think they, is what they may be underestimating. All right, that does it for the news this week. But Walter, so far on What Really Matters, we've followed the news with two different segments, the learning curve, which draws on an anecdote from history, and then the big conversation about some large conceptual or philosophical issue in history or contemporary politics. But I think we're, we're finding that the distinction between history, philosophy, and current events in this sense is a little artificial. And in any case, we like keeping these podcasts to around half an hour or so. So from now on, we'll follow up the first half of each episode on the news with the second half being the big conversation, drawing on anything and everything from history and the contemporary world. So many thanks to our listeners for sticking with us as we iterate and find the format that works best for us and for all of you. And with that, let's get into this week's big conversation. Maybe the biggest question in the world right now, and we may eventually come to see it as one of the major turning points in world history, is what is wrong with China? So just this week, which has been as representative as any recently, you have a, a flood of stories about how China's birth rate declined 20% in two years and 40% in five years, just an unprecedented drop in fertility. Marriage rates are also collapsing. Youth unemployment has skyrocketed, I think, to over 20%. The economy is undergoing a contractionary slide in demand. There's apparently maybe contagion in the small and mid-sized banks. Uh, Full-blown financial crisis seems to be in play. There's also a property crisis, a liquidity crunch. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Now, it's beyond your oracular powers, Walter, uh, even yours, I should say, to make firm predictions about Chinese demographic and economic data. 
But a question a lot of our listeners probably have is, you know, is all this actually good news for the United States strategically in the sense that all the hyperventilating about China overtaking America is just bunk and our position in the world is actually pretty secure? Or is this in fact very bad news for the U.S. in the sense that a Chinese Communist Party that maybe sees itself as running out of time might feel it has a limited window to achieve everything it wants and we should therefore expect it to be even more reckless and aggressive militarily in the near term? Well, the only possible answer to that, Jeremy, is all of the above. You know, um, uh, on the one hand, obviously, um, well, I'll pull back a little bit. And I've never had a lot of confidence in these scenarios that just say China will grow, you know, 8% a year forever. Trees do not grow to the sky, even in China. And I remember back when Japan was, was in its glory days and everybody was talking about, oh my gosh, uh, you know, Japan is taking over. It's going to, you know, you just project it out into the future. And I remembered, uh, I sat down and worked some different projections. It looked to me like sort of at, at, if current trends continued, the Japanese would go extinct by about 3000 AD. The last Japanese living would be a woman. She'd be 125 years old, and she would be running a $5 trillion a year trade surplus with the United States. So, um, uh, you know, so this, this sort of um, very, very simplistic punditry that consists of taking a set of numbers and projecting them to infinity, then running around with your hair on fire screaming is not, I think, the highest use of human intellect. And the, the most unlikely thing of all has always been that the Chinese economy, uniquely in the history of the world, would simply rise to gigantic, unprecedented size without ever encountering a financial crisis, a change of economic model, or any sort of meaningful hiccup of any kind. So uh, in that sense, the current troubles do not necessarily signal the end of Chinese prosperity or growth. I have to say, personally, I'm, I'm slightly uh, pleased by the way this vindicates one of my little pet theories of the world, which is that, high, that widespread construction of high-speed rail is a sign of imminent economic decline. Happened in Europe. I can't imagine what you must have in mind. Happened in Europe, happened in Japan, and now it's happened. It, it seems to have happened again in China. Uh, and uh, so let's just hope that those who are trying to cover the United States with, with high-speed rail fail yet again and our economy be saved for the future. Uh, I do think that um, China has some real problems. Fundamentally, they've got a problem that, that you just can't fix, which is that the more developed an economy becomes and the more sophisticated its people and its economic actors become, the more difficult it is to impose a kind of heavy top-down regime and planning on the whole thing. And that's true, in a sense, for psychological reasons that People in a very prosperous society are used to being consumers and getting what they want. 
and they get annoyed if the government isn't letting them watch what they want on the internet or whatever it may be. Uh, they also um, become argumentative and they, they don't just sit like a bunch of peasants being told, you know, five great truths by Mao Zedong and that's all you've ever heard and no one you know, no one you know can read or write. So you just kind of believe it. You have that problem. But you also have the economy itself just becomes a lot more complex. So you try to tamp down on real estate speculation and suddenly you've got a crisis in the funding of local governments. Uh, or you, um, so, so the Chinese, what the Chinese are trying to do gets harder with every year. And you can see, I think in some ways we see that the party understands that its task is getting difficult because long before the current economic slowdown, we've seen really a decade of very, very focused planning by the Chinese Communist Party on increasing social control, decreasing the visibility of any kind of dissent. It's pretty well known, I think, that they spend more time on internal security than they do on external national defense. So they've been, they've been worried for a long time. I think they've tried repeatedly to try to deal with their real, the problem of their real estate bubble. But every time they try to do it and they try to um, sort of gently let the air out of the bubble, you start getting signs of a mini financial crisis and they tend to be terrified or, or lobbied into going back to policies that just sort of, they go back to digging the hole deeper. Uh, it looks like they're still responding in this way. The pressure becomes overwhelming. So they're in trouble. You're right that when a, you know, a, in the past, the difference, say, between a Xi Jinping and a Putin was that Putin always figured that time was not on his side, that Russia 10 years from now might be weaker than it is. If you let nature t take its course, your country is going to become weaker and less important. So you better move now to forestall changes that you don't like. While the Chinese have more or less said, well, you know, we don't solve Taiwan this year. Ten years down the road, we're going to be richer and stronger. America is going to be less able to do anything about it. So we can kick the can down the road. We're going to get what we want. And why should we worry? While that's a little ominous, if they're right, if that forecast is correct, it's bad news in the future. But it is certainly good news for today. Yeah, so the question is, does their thinking now flip? Does Xi Jinping start acting more like a man in a hurry? Now, so far, I don't think we've seen conclusive evidence of that. There are some things that frighten me. Uh, one of them would be the tremendous uh, campaign to, to promote, um, to switch agriculture f into grain production. That is, the Chinese are really trying to reduce their dependence on wheat, corn, but also soybeans from abroad, even though some of their methods they're using to do this are right out of the you know, crazy, great leap forward kind of playbook where they're ripping up mature fruit orchards in land that's not good for wheat to plant wheat. So they're going to probably end up with less produce of any kind as a result of this. 
but they're they're doing this kind of national mobilization. The party is is getting involved. Is this because they're starting to think that there might be a war sometime soon, and they need to have a lot of food stocked up in case the imports stop? So there are signs to be worried, as always with China. Uh, but we'll we'll have to you know we're going to have to wait and see. I'm afraid. I I uh, you're right. My oracular powers don't allow me to tell you what China is going to do next month. It makes me think of how some historians, certain certainly not most, but a small school, I think, have interpreted the economic and military decision-making in Nazi Germany as being this kind of race against time. The theory there being that the Nazis were hyper-conscious of Germany's economic limitations compared with America and the British Empire, and that one of the ways of understanding the need for Lebensraum beyond the pathological racial stuff was the perceived need to expand territorially and economically while they could to have any hope of self-sufficiency or ability to compete with the U.S. And that all that, at least as much as Hitler being simply insane, is how you explain some otherwise incomprehensible decisions like Barbarossa and, and so forth. So, I mean, I know this that kind of thing is almost too horrible to contemplate, but do you see a lot of decision-making in Beijing being driven not only by this kind of race against time idea, but also, you know, really just kind of everything being decided relative to how they see American power in the world. Yeah. I, you know, they do, um, they prop, they, they swing, they have mood swings. Like we go between China's nothing. We don't have to worry. Uh Oh, China's 10 feet tall. They have similar mood swings with respect to us. So at the time of the 2008 financial crisis, they were just sure we were doomed it was over. This is the great crisis that Marx wrote about. And now uh, we're going to finally move forward. And then the fact that we're still standing and coming out of COVID in some ways in better shape than they are, I think has flipped the switch a bit more back the other way. So yeah, they, you know, and, and of course they were inaccurate in 2008 and they may be overestimating us now, uh, but that's a, that's a constant in history that most people don't fully understand the the times and the conditions in which they live. And so they, they take decisions based on imperfect analysis. And the decisions that they take, by the way, are often imperfect there too. So um, they take decisions that are that that even if their analysis was was correct, would not get them to where they want to go, but their analysis is also incorrect. History is a fascinating subject. Xi Jinping probably has one of the worst track records of any world leader today in that you think, you know, you could, you could argue that he combines the diplomatic acumen of Kaiser Wilhelm I, who sort of bellicose uh, saber rattling created the global coalition against him that he most feared, and perhaps the economic talents of a Herbert Hoover who ended up getting, uh, you know, managing his country into the deepest depression in its history. That's not a great portfolio. But in China today, if you're not prepared to run around and say, ah, Xi Jinping thought this is the foundation. This is, the man is a genius. His thought has answers for, for everything. Uh, then, then you're just, you're not allowed really 
to go anywhere, do anything. Uh, so that's that kind of culture of, of cognitive dissonance between the truth that you are supposed to believe and proclaim and which all the visible leaders of your society are lining up and proclaiming, the gap between that and, and reality is even under conditions of Chinese censorship getting much, much harder to disguise. At the same time, I suspect that uh, Mr. Xi is finding himself in a bubble of his own. It reminds me sometimes of um, an afternoon I spent with Fidel Castro back in uh, the 1990s when there was a conference on an anniversary of the, of the Bay of Pigs. And uh, Fidel sat around all afternoon basically telling endless, and I mean endless and pointless, war stories about his memories of that day. You know, come on, uh, remember, Jorge, you and me were behind the tree, and then, uh, you know, uh, Juan came by in the truck, and you yelled, get down. I mean, it was that level of pointless war stories. And he looked around, maybe dimly aware that he'd been talking for a while, and he said, am I talking too much? And all the Cubans in the room go, no, no. Fidel, no, <laughs> tell us more. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, this is, this is a real occupational hazard of supreme leaders. And I suspect that, that Xi Jinping has a very hard time finding people who will give him a frank assessment of where things are. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end today on the tip of the week. So last week we got a poetry tip out of you, Walter. This week it's going to be opera. I'm sorry to be outing you as such an elitist here, but assuming even fewer of our listeners are acquainted with opera than with poetry, give us your all-time favorite, number one, must-see, can't-miss opera for people who think they don't like it but don't know what they're missing. Yeah, I would say start with Mozart, and start. I would say start with um, the magic flute. This is one of the incredible pieces of music in the canon, absolutely beautiful. Unlike most operas, it ends well, so you're not, you're not going to cry your heart out while you watch it, but... It's Mozart using popular music of his day, integrating it into um, this very, very beautiful, ethereal kind of music. But it's also got that great drama and villainy that opera is known for. The queen of the night, uh, leading character in this opera, sings one of the great arias, which is basically saying to her daughter, Listen, I got an enemy, and I want you to kill him. I want you to hurt him really, really bad. And if you don't do that, you're no daughter of mine. You are cursed forever. And this horrifying thing, the kind of thing that Sleeping Beauty's stepmother would be likely to, to say, is one of the most beautiful pieces of music in history. So it's, it's a lot of fun. I, rec I recommend that. And by the way, if I can say so, my niece is going to be singing a, a part in this opera to, at a festival in Weimar this summer. Uh, she'll be singing the daughter of the Queen of the Night, who's being told to, to commit these terrible crimes. It's a, Opera is 
really one of the great art forms. It's if, if I have a spare evening, that's what I'd like to do with it is go to the opera. I think there's an Ingmar Bergman film version of the magic flute. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen it. Yeah. There are, there, there are a number of film versions of the magic flute because it is just so compelling as music and you can find on the, you just go to the internet, you'll find chances to see it. They also, the Met has had some really good productions of it and you can, um, uh, sometimes these are shown in, in theaters around the world. Um, and you can just sort of go see it in HD. It is pretty amazing. It's, it's great stuff. And Mozart is just an eminently listenable composer. There you have it. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. <laughs>